0: Welcome to the UGA BCM podcast, a ministry of the BCM at the University of Georgia. To find out more about us, follow us on Instagram at UGA BCM. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you all so much for having me. This is my first time on the campus of the University of Georgia. Um however, even though this is my first time here, I feel a great like debt of gratitude to you all because the University of Georgia has been very good to our church personally, uh the two guys that traveled with me. Um uh, two of our pastors at our church, Spencer Smith, um, right up here, and then Wes Smith, uh, somewhere out in there. Um, West back there in the back, our college pastor. Both of them are graduates here of the University of Georgia. Uh, in fact, we counted um, on, uh, we were talking earlier, and a total, uh, get this, 28 of our pastors and staff come from the University of Georgia. Isn't that amazing? We're up there in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, so you are impacting people all over the world. You train them, you send them, you send them up to the mission field uh, up where we are. Um, I, uh, you know, actually, uh, one thing Tommy left out of his introduction, I hate to, I don't want to correct you, but I've actually been begging Tommy and Franklin and these guys to let me come and preach here for years. I've been begging that. Um, I mean, I first got to know Franklin and Tommy at some, you know, college ministry event, and I was like, hey man, let me, you know, I, I pastor a church. It's like UNC Chapel Hill, NC State, Duke University. Within, not kidding, 10 minutes of the front door of our church, there are 120,000 college students. So I'm like, we got a lot in common, you know, all this stuff. And uh, I said, like, let me come and preach it at the University of Georgia. Tommy looked at me. I, mean, I think it was Franklin, just so sincere. And he said, brother, I appreciate the ministry, but this is SEC country down here. You're not ready for students at the University of Georgia. He says, you keep working up there. So, I don't know, we grew a big college ministry, and I feel like things are going well. And and so, uh, I saw him again at an event a few years later, and I'm like, hey, man, I think I'm ready to come and, you know, preach at the University of Georgia. And this time it was Tommy. Tom was like, man, I've, I've been listening to your podcast. Brother, you're not ready. You're not ready for the University of Georgia. Um, so, I wrote a book. I wrote a book about reaching college students. And in fact, I'll tell you about it here more in a second. And and I sent him a copy of the book, and <laughs> I went ahead and put it up there. Uh, that's not what I meant for right now, but um, just, these are ADD, there you go, take it down. Um, so I, uh, I, um, I said, man, I don't, you know, I feel like you, I feel like we, uh, I ought to come and talk about the book. And Tommy was like, man, I read the book, and brother, you're just not ready for the University of Georgia. And I was like, man, I don't understand, like, I, like I'm a pastor at church, and we reach college students, and I wrote a book, I just want to come. I was like, man, I'll pay my own way, I'll come for free. He said, now, brother, you're ready for the University of Georgia. So here I am. You're going to get what you pay for. Uh, No, everybody knows the real reason I'm here is because David Platt was busy, but I'm super excited about being here, Okay. Um, I, I, I did want to, say, if you give me just a few moments here, real quickly, I did want to tell you um, I, I did write a book. They can actually put it um, up there in a second. Um, I did uh, write a book called Essential Christianity. Um, I actually have a copy of it. I know it's really, really tacky to talk about a book like this, like it's a commercial, but uh, to be totally honest, I wrote it for you, uh, not just you at the University of Georgia, but um, wrote it for our college students to give them a, a way of sharing the gospel with people. Uh, because what I found was that in the book of Romans, um, there are basically 10 different questions in Romans that people ask in every culture, in every age, on every campus in the world. Uh, Questions like, um, what is Christianity? If you were going to summarize it in a sentence, how do you know there's a God? Um, aren't all religions basically the same? If Christianity is true, then why does the Christian life feel so hard? Um, uh, questions like, what about the Christian view of sexuality? These are, are things that Paul deals with in the book of Romans. And so um, I wrote a book that just basically is saying, let's take those 10 questions, let's use Romans as a starting point, and let's express them in the language of 21st century Americans. And so um, I, I know it's tacky to talk about it like I'm advertising it. I will tell you all the proceeds from this book go to Feed Hungry children. Um, their names are Karis, Ali, Raya, and Aden. Um, they're all in my home right at the very moment. So um, anyway, actually, you'll do this. If you, um, if, I mean, if you have Instagram, you have Instagram, most of you, I'm assuming. Um, if you go to my handle, pastor at pastorjdgreer.com, uh, at pastorjdgreer, um, there is a, a thing on there right now. If you will, if you like... I don't know, however you do it, put it in your story or whatever. I think my team said for the first 10 people that do that, they will send you a free copy of this book. They will mail it to you. So that's what you can do for the next two minutes. If you just want to zone out, you can do that and you will get a free copy of the book. Um, in fact, does anybody want this one? I just, I have one right there. Okay. Will you actually read it? Will you read it? Not when I'm up here talking, but you will read it. Okay. Are you good catching? Because we got Ryland Gotey, a tight end for the Bulldogs right here on the front. He can catch it for you and hand it to you. You good? Okay. Amazing. Look, you play for TCU, don't you? <laughs> I am just kidding. Hey, one more thing real quick. And and I um, I work with an organization called the North American Mission Board. I think you're very involved with them here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and mention this really quickly because at the very end, this is going to be relevant for an action step that some of you may want to take as a result of what we talk about tonight. Um Gen Send is a group that helps students like you begin to live on mission. They have a, a whole program called Gen Slend slash Break. I think it's how you'd look that up. And um, it's basically different um, things that you can do um, on your your spring breaks, your summer breaks to, to begin to live um, on mission. I think they actually, let me th- yeah, they put a uh, yeah, the number is 888-123, and you text Jen Sin to them, and they'll actually get a conversation started with you about how you can use one of your summers, your breaks, to be able to work with a church planner overseas or right here um, in the United States and begin to discover, um, hey, maybe God has called you and gifted you. Maybe it's not for full-time ministry, but maybe it's, it's some kind of thing that you can be a part of. I believe, we believe that every single college student at some point um, in their college career ought to engage in some kind of ministry mission like this, even if you're going to be a doctor or an architect or a teacher or whatever, to be able to have the skills to be able to make disciples wherever you go. And this is a great way to do it. If you'll text them, get that conversation started. There's Great resources they have there, like I think there's one called Life Essentials that's really good on how to lead people to Christ and how to disciple them once you do. Um, so I wanted to mention that because I'll say it right at the very end, but I won't have a lot of time to talk about it there. Okay, all right. Acts chapter four. If you got your Bible, if you have your Bible, um, if you will turn it to Acts chapter four. Years as you're turning there. Years ago, I remember reading um, an article about a true story. Um, about um, a a California, they called him an average ordinary California citizen, as if there were such a thing, uh, by the name of Larry Walters. Um, Larry Walters was, uh, story goes, that he went out to his local Army Navy surplus store and he bought 48 used Army weather balloons. Um, He inflated them and he attached them to a a lawn chair that he had secured uh, to the back of his pickup truck. Um, he got several of his friends together, and on this fateful day, he climbed into the lawn chair. Um, he took with him a, um, a, a peanut butter sandwich, a fully loaded BB gun, and a six-pack of beer. Um, two, in the words of this article, he was hoping to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle and thereby gain a new perspective on his life. According to this article, he took nothing with him, like I said, except for a peanut butter sandwich, a fully loaded BB gun, and a six-pack of beer. Two and a half hours later, and I'm not kidding about this, the Los Angeles International Airport reported an unidentified flying object in the skies above LAX at 16,547 feet. It's three miles into the sky. Lawn chair Larry, as this guy came to be known, now more than three miles into the sky and more than 100 miles um, away from where he originally had set off from. He was completely passed out. In fact, the pilot of the 737 who first spotted Larry radioed back to the tower at LAX and said, well, I see what looks like a perfectly still man sitting in a, is it a lawn chair? I don't know. And I think he might be holding a rifle in a rescue stunt that would have made Nicolas Cage proud. SWAT teams lassoed Larry. They went up in a helicopter. They lassoed him, managed to get him into the helicopter and then ferry him safely to the ground in case you are curious. Larry's plan had been um, that once he got up to the right altitude, um, he would take his BB gun and he would pop, you know, the balloons to kind of stabilize him at that altitude. And then once it was time to go down, he would take the BB gun and he would pop more balloons and that would, you know, make him lower back down to the ground. What could possibly go wrong with that? Um, So his friends in this article said, Larry, uh, you know, we thought he was just going to sort of lazily saunter up into the atmosphere. So when we untied that rope, he did not lazily saunter up into the atmosphere. It looked like he'd been shot out of a cannon. Just they untied the rope and just, just shot straight up. And Larry he freaked out. I mean, he got too he was too scared to shoot the because he thought he you know flip himself over or something. So Larry said, "I did the only thing in that situation in that stressful situation that I knew how to do. I opened the cans of beer." He drank four cans of beer, and not realizing that you know it messes with your blood alcohol level at that level, uh, he passed out, and then that's when the 737 spotted him. Um, when they got him to the ground, my favorite part of this story, um, when they got him down to the ground and revived him back to consciousness, local police, the LA Police Department, issued Larry a $4,000 ticket for the obstruction of airport traffic. A local journalist then asked Larry three questions. These are not funny, so don't... Still the need to give me a courtesy laugh but the, the reason i share this story with you question number one was larry larry were you scared and larry said yes yes i was terrified question number two larry would you do it again and larry said no that's how you know he's not from georgia He'd be, i'd do that again <laughs> get me back up there question number three larry why did you do it and Larry said, I love this, I just got tired of always sitting around. Now, you're like, is that story true? I mean, of course, I have the source of the internet right here in my hands. Like, everything I read on the, the internet is true. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty confident after I crossed it, referenced a little bit, that this is a story that has grown in, in legend and myth. But the core of it is true, because I found a CNN article that actually talked about the core of this, about Chair Larry. Um, but the reason I share it is because I really do feel like it captures a lot of how you, sitting in this room, how you feel. In fact, if I understood it from the guys that were helping lead this thing tonight, that's really kind of what the whole spirit is here, is you got a lot of people that are just tired of sitting around. You know that you're supposed to make some difference. You know that you got this one short little life And you really believe, like, I'm here to make a difference, and I want to do something in the world, even if you're not a Christian. I mean, one of the things we we recognize about this generation is this is a world-changing generation. They really want to impact the world, and you're like, I'm just not sure what to do. And so because you don't have a clear vision of what to do, you end up, like Larry, getting involved in all kinds of stupid stuff that, you know, just, I don't know, maybe not as dumb as him, but, but you just end up kind of throwing away your life. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you about, if, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, what ought to define your life, regardless of whatever else you're called to, whether you're thinking about going into ministry or whether you're, you're thinking, I'm going to be a, an architect, I'm going to be a nurse, I'm going to be, you know, whatever it is that you're planning to be, whatever it is that this ought to be the core of, of, of what it means to follow Jesus, an assignment that God has given to all of us. And I'm going to give you four words that define that mission, that assignment, four words that ought to define your life and your message, okay? Let's just read the passage first. It's Acts chapter four. Is there possible at all, is there any light that would come from behind me because I don't have to pull out my phone, that's super embarrassing to have to turn my flashlight on and read this like I'm 78 years old, okay? You don't need to turn the whole light on everywhere because I know the bee. Okay, maybe we will. All right, here we go. You can turn it back off in a minute so we can feel cozy and anonymous. Um, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, real quick, context. Peter and John had just healed a lame man in chapter 3. Lame, he couldn't walk. Not lame like he was, you know, dumb, but lame like he, he couldn't walk. And they, they In the name of Jesus, they gave him the power to walk. This is the Jesus that just a few weeks before Acts chapter 3 had been crucified by the religious leaders and the disciples knew had risen again and so this lame man goes around everywhere in the city of jerusalem and he is proclaiming to everyone i was lame and i could not walk and in the name of jesus in the power of the resurrected jesus i can now walk and he starts doing backflips for everybody and so this made the pharisees mad uncomfortable because they were the ones that helped kill jesus and now you got a guy walking around saying In the name of this Jesus, I've actually been given the power to walk. And so they brought Peter and John in like you're the guys that pulled this thing off and we know that whatever it is you're doing is not right. So we want you to cut this out. And so so Peter and John, this is their moment in front of those Pharisees after they have been commanded to speak no longer the name of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In other words, hey, you guys had a verdict on Jesus, and you thought he wasn't worth worshiping, and you thought his claims to being the only way of salvation, you thought that they were overblown. That was your verdict. You crucified him. But then God countermanded your verdict by raising him from the dead. By this man's name, this man, this lame man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and that stone that you rejected, he has become the cornerstone, and he's got the power to raise the dead and make lame men walk. Then Peter says, and there is salvation in nobody else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Peter says this miracle actually raises a different question. And that other question is who is the authority in this life who is it that determines what's right and what's wrong and 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 what the rules are for death and what it means to enter into eternity that's what this miracle raises this is not just about who healed a lame man it's about who made the world and who made you and who has the right to call the shots verse 13 and when they saw the boldness of peter and john and perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men in other words When they saw that these were not the spiciest doritos in the bag they hadn't graduated from elite schools they were not part of the intellectual elite they were they were they were they were bama grads right they were not uga grads they were not intellectually impressive by the way this statement is kind of funny when you consider that the author of this passage is luke who was a good friend of peter and john's and luke is like yeah my friends are not exactly what you would call smart you know they didn't really they don't really know how to put coherent sentences together. Uh, you would never look at them and say, man, these guys are impressive in how much they know. They can just really, they're just not, they're just not impressive. When they saw that they were ignorant and unlearned men, Luke says, they were astonished. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was standing beside him, I don't know why this makes me laugh every time I read it. They had nothing to say in opposition. Every time they get ready to shut these guys down, the guy who's lame like, you, you know, starts jumping up and down going, Hey, Mom, look, I can you know, do a backflip. I can skip. I can do whatever. It's like, Well, we can't really say anything because look at this guy over here. Verse 18. So they called them and he charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, which is pretty idiotic. I mean, he literally just made the lame guy walk and he's raised from the dead. And they're like, don't talk about him anymore. And they're like, we're not going to do that. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you're going to have to be the judge of that. But see, we, we cannot speak of what we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Like I said, four words or word phrases that ought to characterize our assignment and our mission. Here's the first one. Number one, confident yet humble. Confident yet humble. Y'all, what strikes me as I read over this passage is Peter and John's boldness, right? Here they are looking at the most intimidating authority in Jerusalem at the time, and they're like, we can't help, we can't stay quiet about what we've seen and heard, and yet somehow when they say this, y'all, there's not the slightest trace of arrogance. Peter owns, we're not that smart. We're not saying that we're right because we're smarter than you. We're not saying that we're morally superior. Peter was like, look, he rose from the dead. How can we not speak about that? You can be arrogant about what you believe. Let me just go ahead and make that really clear. There's a lot of Christians who are total jerks about what they believe. But what Peter is showing you is that confidence in what you believe can just come from being honest about what you believe and things that you don't believe you have the authority to change because you're not the one who wrote them anyway. Years ago, this was before I got married, I was um, getting on a plane to Fort Lauderdale um, where I'd spent a few weeks and I was coming back up to where I lived in North Carolina I was going to fly into Charlotte and I go into the, it was one of those red eye flights. I don't do them a whole lot anymore, but it was when they wanted to move one plane from one place to another, they would sometimes do it at like one in the morning and you could get on it for dirt cheap. And I was Mr. Dirt Cheap. So that's how I was going to fly. So I go out and I go into this waiting room. It's like 1.30 in the morning. I walk into this little gate area and there's like two people in the entire gate area to get on this plane. One of them, the guy over here looked like he was 178 years old. He had one foot in the grave, one foot on a banana peel. I mean, this guy is like two steps shy of a coma. I mean, we're talking seconds is how long this guy had. And uh, on the other side was this, no, I wasn't married at the time, so that's important, was this, I mean, drop dead gorgeous, like, I mean, she was, uh, she obviously came from some like South America is where I found out she came from. Her, her name was Bertha, not Bertha, but Bertha. And so I was like, who should I, Lord, who should I go sit next to? Ice cream, spinach. And so I headed over and I sat next to Bertha. And um, Bertha and I struck up a conversation. She was on her way back up to Harvard University. I graduated from Campbell University, so I immediately felt like we had a lot in common. And so I began to, I just, she was, we were about the same age. And, and uh, I started to talk to her about um, just how Jesus had changed my life and, because I was a Christian by that point, and, and I was told about Jesus and, and all this. I remember her eyes got so wide, and she was kind of nodding her head. And she's like, you know, at Harvard, I'm with the most driven, intelligent guys in the world. She says, and I never, no, no matter how smart or how rich or how driven they are, I don't ever hear any of them talk with the conviction and passion that you're talking with now. And I just find that really attractive. And I'm like, oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm gonna lead her to Christ. We're gonna get married. This is gonna be a great story I can tell at conferences one day, and um, so uh, we we end up sitting together in the plane because there was nobody on the plane, so we, we sat together and and uh, so all the whole way on, I'm explaining who Jesus is, how he changed my life, and I remember when um we you know getting ready to land, I'm like well, I gotta close the deal for Jesus, and so I I was like, look, but I was like, you know, you, you gotta receive Jesus. That's he's the The way, the truth, and the life. And I remember she just looks at me and she's like, nah, she goes, it it just I I really respect it in you, but it just wouldn't work for me. I was like, but I don't think you understand. Like it's not just like my way, it's like Jesus said he is the way. And she was like, Well, she said, Surely you don't mean that that Jesus, you're telling me that he is the only way that somebody can get to heaven. And I was like, but I'm not telling you that Jesus is telling you that John 14 6 and I'm opening the Bible and I'm showing it to her I remember she got this, her, her eyes kind of narrowed. She looked at me and she says You cannot possibly tell me that you think that there is one way that you would go to heaven And that it's jesus. You can't tell me that you think that And I said, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's just right here And she said she said I think you're the most arrogant jerk i've ever met in my entire life now, at that point, I knew the wedding was off. by the way, I was like, ah. Oh. So I'm like, I, I was like stunned. I was like, because I, I wasn't trying to be arrogant. And I sort of sat back and the pilot came on. And he was announced that we were our final approach to Charlotte. And um, I leaned over to her because I remembered something. I can't remember who said this first, but I remember I leaned over to her and I was like, I just want you to know that I am so glad that the pilot of this airplane does not look at the runway the same way you do heaven." She was like, what do you mean? I was like, let's just say that he comes on the intercom, the, the, the thing. And he's like, you know what? I am sick and tired of that arrogant little airport telling me where and how I got to land this airplane. I, I'm an open-minded pilot. I don't want to land on the runway. I'm going to land nose first on top of the Wachovia building in downtown Charlotte. I'm going to land upside down on the interstate. I was like, no, he wants to land the plane safely. So he's going to land it on that little narrow strip that they call the runway. And that's not because he's arrogant. It's because he's smart. And she went, she went, that's not fair. I said, yes, it is. That's Campbell one, Harvard zero, by the way. That's what you saw right there. No. I have thought back many times in that conversation and thought, I did not handle that the way that I should have handled that. And Lord, I'm sorry. And I hope br- br- to forgave me uh, for being a jerk one day. But I don't apologize for what I actually said to her. Maybe the spirit in which I said it. Because you understand that if Jesus really is who he says he is, then he makes the rules. That's the question. That's all Peter's saying. If Jesus rose from the dead, then of course he's the one that determines how we get to heaven. It's not arrogant to say that. In fact, it's arrogant to say it's not true if Jesus is who he says he is. Does that make sense to you? Peter's like, listen, no offense. You guys got more degrees on your wall than a thermometer. We are ignorant and unlearned people. We didn't graduate from middle school. We're not, we rode the short bus to school. We are not smart guys. But no offense to you guys. If you got a choice, you got to choose to believe either what a bunch of guys with degrees on their walls say or what, or what a guy who got out of the grave says. You ought to go with the guy who got out of the grave every single time. If Jesus is who Jesus says he is, then it's not arrogant. It's just saying, we believe he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then he knows the truth about eternity. That's the question. Is Jesus who he says he is? That's really the only question. Is he who he says he is? Because if he is who he says he is, you can believe what he says when you have no ability to to verify it. That's number one, confident yet humble. Here's number two. Number two is spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. It's easy, at least for me, to read Peter's words here and be inspired by his bravery. But you know, if you've read the Bible, that Peter had failed before. In fact, just a few weeks before this, he had failed pretty miserably. I mean, talk about a career fail. This is the future leader of the church, and he denies Christ, not once, not twice, but three times And the third time to essentially a middle school age girl because he is scared. The difference between that moment when he denies Jesus and caves like a house of cards in front of a middle school girl, the difference between that moment and this moment is that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. The power for this kind of mission comes not from bravery. It comes from the Holy Spirit inside of us. Let me go ahead and just take a huge burden off of you, okay? Listen, God does not need you to win anybody to Christ on this campus because you couldn't do it even if you wanted to. He's the one that has the power to bring life. He uses you, But ultimately, that sets upon him when the Holy Spirit came upon Peter in Acts chapter 2, just two chapters before this. It really doesn't translate in how our Bibles are written because it says, you know, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Scholars say mighty rushing wind really means a hurricane. Have you ever been in a tornado or like very close to a tornado or in a hurricane? Raise your hand if you've been like that. It is a terrifying experience that you cannot relate to someone in words if they have not been there. The power of that kind of wind. I was in my home in North Carolina when a a tornado came 100 feet from our house. It was one of the most terrifying things I've ever been through. This sound, it is deafening. They say it sounds like a freight train. It sounds like you are being run over by a freight train is what it sounds like. That was the sound that filled this room. This was not a gentle breeze. This was not a Corona commercial. This This was the sound of like they thought they were about to die. And that spirit, that wind came inside of them. And what you're seeing in Acts chapter 2 is you're seeing the evidence of that coming out of Peter. What makes the difference in those who are successful in this and those who aren't are the ones who recognize that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work within them. Y'all, Jesus made such incredible promises about the Holy Spirit that honestly, there's no way we've taken them seriously. I'll give you just one, just one by way of example, because this is what Peter is holding on to. Peter was here for this conversation right before he, Jesus, went up to heaven. Put up um, John 16, 7. I think I have that in there for you. Here it is. Jesus said, to his disciples, right? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. By the way, stop there. Jesus was not in the habit of telling lies. He didn't have to clarify. Okay, now I'm actually being serious. He didn't have to say that. Whenever he uses that phrase, I tell you the truth, it's because what he is about to say is so mind-blowing that if you don't pay attention to it, it'll go right over your head. But watch this. It is to your, read that word with me. It is to your what? Advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. Can you think for a minute about how absurd that must have sounded to those first disciples? It's to my advantage that Jesus go away. How awesome would it have been to have Jesus on your ministry team? What's that experience like? Jesus as your small group leader. You go out for a tough day of ministry and you come back with some theological questions about Calvinism, bam, Jesus answers them perfectly. Right? You're at your small group and you run out of you know, Cheetos, bam, Jesus multiplies the Cheetos and there's 12 baskets left over. Your dog dies and you're questioning life, bam, Jesus raises your dog back from the dead. Your cat dies. Jesus digs a hole to help you bury the cat and get rid of it forever and ever and ever. Amen? No, okay, I'm kidding. That's not exactly what it would be like to walk with Jesus for three years, but, but it had to be awesome. And now Jesus is telling you it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. My guess is if Tommy sat up here and said, hey, next time we do this, got good news for you guys, we got a way better speaker than J.D., way better than David Platt. It's Jesus of Nazareth. My bet is next time, you're bringing a friend. Is that right? Are you as excited that you're walking out of here tonight with the Holy Spirit inside of you as you would be if we announced that Jesus Christ himself was speaking here next time? Because if not, you haven't paid attention to what this verse is actually saying. Because at that point, it's no longer about your abilities in ministry. It's about your availability to him. In fact, I told you one. I got to give you two, so I apologize. This is the last one. Matthew eleven, eleven. Jesus said, there's never been anyone greater born among women. Than, oh, Paul, it's According to Jesus, who was the greatest preacher ever to live? According to Jesus. Wasn't Louis Giglio. Wasn't John Piper. Greatest, who was it? Name starts with J, rhymes with on the Baptist. John the Baptist, excellent guess. Jesus loved John the Baptist. He podcasted John the Baptist. He was a huge John the Baptist fan. Jesus was like, there's never been a greater preacher than John the Baptist, ever. But truly, I tell you the truth. There's that phrase again. The one of you, follow this, who is least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Question, what does least in my kingdom mean? Least in my kingdom means you got the least spiritual gift. you got the least potential. You know the least about the Bible. you got the worst personality. Somebody in this room right now, somebody that I'm looking at, one of you is the least of the kingdom of God in here. I'm not saying that to be a jerk. I'm just saying mathematically that has to be true. One of you is at the bottom. Right now, you're sitting there thinking, it it might be me. And Jesus is going, yep, it's you. You're the worst. You got the least potential. Nobody even knows you're in here, right? You go to a small group, people don't recognize you. You're there. I mean, just like you're like, you have the least potential. <laughs> even if that's true. Even if that's true, what Jesus is saying, listen to this, is you have more potential in ministry than John Piper, David Platt, Louis Giglio, Beth Moore, Jenny Allen, whoever you want to put in the blank, you got more potential than John the Baptist because because of the Holy Spirit. It is not about your abilities in ministry. It's just about your availability to him. That's it, period. That's all that it means. One act of obedience and surrender to the Holy Spirit does more than all the talent of the greatest leaders in the world. we got a really good example of that, by the way, a few chapters after this in Acts chapter 8, where you got an ordinary guy named Philip. He's not an apostle. He's out doing some ministry, and the Holy Spirit tells him, obey me and go stand out in the middle of nowhere on this little dirty, dusty roads out in the middle um, of northern Israel. And he goes and stands there, and along by comes a guy that we now refer to as the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, gets up and shares Christ with them. The power of the Holy Spirit is on that moment. The Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized, gets saved, gets baptized. And according to Eusebius, the church historian, goes back to sub-Saharan Africa where he's from. And not only does he plant a church, he starts a church planting movement that is still in existence today. One act of obedience to the Holy Spirit does more than all the apostles have been able to accomplish in all the chapters leading up to that one when it comes to world evangelization. You understand the point that I'm trying to make to you is Peter is spirit-filled. If you are spirit-filled, and it's not about ability, it's about availability, what happens on this campus when people just start to say yes to the Holy Spirit? I remember when I was a student in college five or six years ago when I graduated. And, um, and um, there was uh, we, I was part of a ministry team. We were doing something like this, honestly. And uh, it was all student-led though. And so we, um, we planned this big event and we were going to have a guy come in and share his testimony. And we were a little tiny Bible study, very insignificant. And so we, we did what we knew. We put up flyers and, you know, we announced there'd be free hot dogs and whatever you do to get people there and have a band and and so, um, I, I've led enough ministry stuff to know when something's going to flop because I've been a part of a lot of failures in my life. And I knew this one was going to, it was going to fail pretty hard. I could tell like the day before that it was like, this is going to fail big time. And it was a huge waste of money. And so we're having our last leadership meeting and we're in the cafeteria. There's like 500 people in the cafeteria. And I'm just like, I'm talking to the team and I'm faced over here. And all of a sudden I, I hear this noise beside me and there's somebody stamping on the like table. And I was like, what in the world? And I look up and it's a girl on our leadership team. Her name is Amy. Amy was the quietest person that I had ever met. I mean, she never, she hardly spoke. I mean, she just always spoke in a whisper. Not an extrovert at all. She's standing on the table and she is slamming her foot down. And I'm like, oh, good Lord, what's about to happen? Please don't dance. Please don't dance. Please don't dance. And she, um, and, and, and she gets the whole place quiet. I mean, it's like 500 people go quiet. And she's like, y'all, you guys, I know this is weird. She said, but tomorrow night, my friends and I, we're going to have somebody come in and talk about how Jesus changed our lives, and we think he can change your life too. And I know this is really weird, and be honest with you, I'm kind of mortified right now that I'm doing this, but I really want y'all to be there, so please come. Okay, that's all I have to say. I and mean, then she sat down, and it was as awkward as I'm describing it. And I remember just looking at her and like, like, Amy, what in the world? She goes, I don't know, I just feel like the Holy Spirit told me to do that. Now, I'm not saying that if you're following the Holy Spirit, he's going to have you stand up in public places on tables. In fact, I would actively encourage you not to do that. But what I will tell you is the next night we had over 750 people show up for this event and 52 people profess faith in Christ. And I think it was because there was a handful of people like her that were just saying, Lord, I'm ready to obey whatever you tell me to do. And I just want to obey the Holy Spirit. Spirit filled. Here's your third one. Here's your third word. Your third word is personal personal notice how personal this was to them their testimony verse 20 we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard in other words this was firsthand to them they have firsthand knowledge of Jesus or look at what the religious leaders said about Peter and John when they saw how bold they were Do you see that in verse 13 they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus these guys spoke with a conviction that went beyond education They spoke with familiarity. They spoke with experience. Jesus was real to them, and he just kind of flowed out of them. Now, I know you hear that, and you're like, well, duh, they'd actually seen him after he resurrected. That would tend to make you confident, but that's not why Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, writes it that way. He's writing it that way to show you that your power in ministry actually comes from fellowship with Jesus. Jesus. And the strength of your witness on campus will never be greater than the strength of your fellowship with Christ. You know, you've probably heard about some of the things that are going on on college campuses around the country where there's, you know, people use the words like revival, where all of a sudden God just comes and begins to wake people up and they begin to people begin to come to Christ. It's never something you're supposed to imitate. It's not something you're supposed to work up But what you find is that there are seasons when suddenly God becomes very real to people, not because you've got great preachers, not because you've got amazing bands, even though you've got an amazing band. It's simply because God's Spirit begins to to flow out of them and become real to them. And the only way that happens is when you've been with Jesus. If you want to see this campus awaken, it has nothing to do with how hard the hearts are of the people that are not in this room, it has to do with how closely you're walking with Jesus and whether you are fellowshipping with him. I have been a part of a few of these, and I've read enough about these to know that you can't ever imitate it, but there's always a couple things that they have in common. Whenever you see God begin to move like this, one of the things that's true is, is, is confession of sin. People like the ones in this room get really, really serious about sin. Sin. In fact, the one that I was a part of when I was in college that I wouldn't compare it to Asbury, but it was, it was big where we were and what was happening is it was about 70 of us one night. We're sitting out and a friend of mine got up and he, I remember he was, his whole message, it wasn't that good. It just, he, he said, he said, I feel like God wants to work on this campus. He said, that I think that God can't because of sin that's in this room right here. He said, I don't mean out there, I mean right here in this room. And he used the story of, jo- of, uh, of Achan in Joshua 7, how God's power was withheld because of sin in the camp. I'm telling you, it was not that good. I was the leader of the Bible study. So he gets done with this little rambling 20-minute thing and then says, does anybody have anything to say? Now, at this point, Tommy, I'm like, this is the awkward like 60 seconds that I wait, and then I get up and I close in prayer. That, that's what was, and I was like, this is, and right as I was about to stand up and like close it in prayer, our worship leader, our worship, I could see him. He was way back in the back. I see him, and from where I'm sitting, I can see him shaking. And I was like, what is, and, and he's got up and he said, I'm the reason that God can't work on this campus because I am so self-centered. He says, I am so jealous of people that are better at worship leading than I am, and I despise them. And he said, I know that that grieves the Holy Spirit, and I'm the worship leader, and God cannot use me. And that all of a sudden somebody else stood up and and it went on. And I won't go through all the different things that were said, but I remember one guy stood up and he said, You know, I got a a pornography habit. And it's not a struggle, it's something that I entertain. I remember one guy stood up and he said, You know, we've been in school for seven weeks. My roommate, I've never shared Christ with my roommate. That can't be pleasing to the Lord. He said, "I, I just want to confess that I care more about my reputation than my roommate's soul. He said, I don't just want to confess that. I want you all to pray for me. We got around him. and We prayed for him. I remember, he left Bible study, went and got his roommate, led him to Christ, and brought him back. We were out there outside. It was for like three hours that night, just as people were confessing sin and just saying, it's me we hadn't been with jesus and that's why god's power wasn't pouring out what happened after that was the story i told you about with my friend amy and all the people that started to come to christ i look back from this day i look back and think about those days of ministry and how real it was not because we were good at ministry we didn't have any money but there was a time where we just said we're going to be with jesus and we're going to be really serious about our walk with him that's all it was prayer it means you begin to pray. That's what it means to be with Jesus. You just pray. We would get together. Ours, we would do it on Sunday nights, and we would just pray for a few hours. We'd walk around campus. It was weird. We'd be, you know, hold our hands out in front of dorms, and we'd pray over dorms. And I look back on it now, and I'm like, we were weird. We were those people. And, you know, I, don't be weird, okay? Learn it from Uncle Jay. Don't be weird. But pray and just ask God and be with Jesus and say, Jesus, we, want, we know that we can't do it, but you can do it, and we want you to do it. Every single prayer that you pray like that, you realize you are the only generation that can reach this generation of college students. They're going to go from here, and you're not going to have any other chance. One of the saddest verses in the Bible to me, y'all, is Matthew 13, 58. Many mighty works Jesus wanted to do in Nazareth, but he did not do them because of their unbelief. It wasn't because he wasn't willing. It wasn't because their hearts were too hard. It wasn't because it was too much unbelief. It was because his people did not believe that he wanted to do it, and you show that belief by prayer. And you just pray, and God begins to pour out his power. They took note that they had been with Jesus. This was very personal to them. This thing is that personal to you. The strength of your testimony on campus will be proportionate. Through your strength with God in private. Here's your fourth word. Last one. Urgent. Urgent. Now listen again to verse 12. There is salvation in nobody else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What does that mean? What's that mean? It means that every single person that you see on this campus, every single person you see on this campus will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. And there's one difference between those two. The name of Jesus. And what I'm telling you is that if you actually believe that, it'll change how you live. I question... I want you to, I'm going to say this with love and humility, but I'm just going to say it straight. I question whether some of you actually believe the gospel. You actually believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope for every person in the world, and yet you've never told anybody about him. I'm not being cruel. I'm not being a jerk. I'm saying, is that, how could that be? I'm not trying to come down on you. I um, was sharing Christ with a young lady named Rhonda. She was from the Northeast, growing up in America, but she had, uh, she'd grown up in America, but she had never heard the gospel. She heard, heard of Jesus, but never had him explain the gospel to her, and I, she, we, she, we had mutual friends and we'd spent some time together, me and this, her and this group of people, and and so Eventually, the subject of Jesus comes up, and we get into debate. She's super smart. She went to Yale, okay? So she was crazy smart. So we're debating back and forth. And I remember she looked at me, and after we probably talked about it for an hour and a half, she said, you actually believe this? And I said, well, yes, of course I believe it. She said, because you don't act like you believe it. I said, what do you mean I don't act like I believe it? She said, because we've known each other for months, and this is the first time we're talking about this? She goes, and here when you're talking to me right now, you don't act like this is actually true. Like you think that apart from this, I'm going to spend eternity apart from God. You think that? She said, if I believe what you say you believe, she said, I don't know how I'd make it through the day. But I can tell you one thing, there's not a person in my life that I would not have come up to on hands and knees and just pled with them and said, you got to listen because Jesus is your only hope of salvation. She said, you act like you're trying to win a debate, but you're telling me that this is a life or death decision, and the passion in your voice does not match the gravity of your message. Now, y'all, I knew she was exactly right. Here's a question. Do you live like the gospel's true? Peter said, there's salvation in nobody else. How how can we keep our mouths shut? How could I possibly keep my mouth shut? Of course I'm going to speak what I've seen and heard. And yeah, you know what? You may, you may put us in prison. We may lose face in front of you. We may, we, we may become unpopular. I, I don't know what it is, but you know what? I know that your soul is worth me running my mouth about this because there's salvation in nobody else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so I am going to speak. You may have heard this before, but um, what's his name? Pen, um, Pen Gillette. He's an atheist magician he lives out in las vegas I remember years ago he did this video where he's like a lot of my people they hate it when somebody shares christ with them they try to witness to them because they think they're you know we hate it when christians proselytize us he says i'm an atheist he says i don't hate it when they do that to me he says i hate it when they don't how what kind of people would they be if they actually believed that jesus was the difference in heaven and hell and they never opened their mouth to me how bad here was this phrase how bad would you have to hate somebody to believe this and not tell them. When I was a junior in college, it became overwhelming to me that the world was lost. There were 2.2 billion people in the world that had never heard the name of Jesus. And I can remember the day sitting in my dorm room when the, the realization of that, not here, but here, just kind of like began to crush me. And I realized that I had three choices. I could deny it. I'm not trying to throw a word around, but I could become a liberal and just choose in the Bible what I wanted to believe. And this was inconvenient to believe. It's an inconvenient truth, so I wouldn't believe it. I could do that. I could become, you know, Rob Bell, Jen Hatmaker, whoever you want to put in that category. I could do that. Or I could ignore it, which is what the church seemed to do. Or I could just say, Lord, here am I, send me. Go to Indonesia to be a missionary. End up nothing wrong with going into law but I got out of law and I went into ministry it's all driven by one conviction this is urgent and people have to hear you actually believe it four words four word phrases confident yet humble right spirit filled personal urgent do these words define your life do they define your life why don't you bow your heads if you would? Three, four. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed this week's message, share it with a friend. To stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram at UGABCM. We hope to see you next Monday night at Gathering.